You're listening to the Dibbly Dobbly Podcast. Remember to like, share, comment, subscribe, and click the bell to make sure you get the latest episodes of the podcast. Be sure to like and share our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Dibbly Dobbly Podcast. On the podcast, we have started a historical series looking back at the game of cricket's history. For today's historical series episode, we are looking back at the history of cricket. Joining me to discuss and talk about the history of cricket is Andrew Hignall, who is the Secretary of the Association of Statisticians and Historians. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, thank you, Andrew. And we're going to have a very fascinating chat about all things cricket, but also the Association of Statisticians and Historians, the good work that the association does in terms of promoting uh, the stats and history of the game of cricket and, and many other things related to the history of cricket um, as well. So hopefully a lot of people will gain a lot um, from this episode uh, today, learning about the history and all things um, history with uh, with the game of cricket. So, so Andrew, let's, first of all, to begin this discussion, let's talk about the Association of Statisticians and Historians. The association was set up in 1973 and in 2023, this year, the association is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Uh, 20 years after the association was formed and set up, the word historians was added on to the title um, to the association's name. And the purpose of the association is to promote and encourage research into the statistical and historical aspects of cricket throughout the world at all levels and to publish the findings. Uh, the association has around around about 850 members worldwide. Members are statisticians, they're historians, and people who are passionate about the game's history and, and statistics. So, so, Andrew, tell us more about the association and the work the association does, and how is the association preserving the history and the statistical side of the game of cricket? Well, I think you very neatly summed it up there. The, uh, the Association of Cricket Statisticians and Historians are, as it were, the uh, internationally renowned guardians of all things relating to the statistical side of the game. And many, many of our members are very eminent historians as well. If I just uh, add a little bit more about the those early meetings back in in 1973, but if I also just go back before that, because there had been various organisations, the Cricket Society in particular, in the late 1940s had, had set up statistical groups and various other individuals, and various pamphlets had been had been produced. A very eminent historian called Roland Bowen then produced a, a series of journals in the 1960s, which really were the forerunners of the uh, the ACS journal today. Uh, um, Roland Bowen's Cricket Quarterly went uh, have a uh, a very uh, wide circulation amongst people who were fascinated by statistics and the early historians as well, and as a result there was a feeling of, uh, amongst many people robert brook uh, one of the uh, key founder members as well and a meeting was convened and robert uh, flew the flag for statisticians in many many ways 
you're right in saying that the the H was added. Um, I started uh, my own um, in, uh, involvement with the association, my own involvement with Glamorgan County Cricket Club. Um, I was very much an, a, an, an S initially, so a statistician. And I can remember growing up in Cardiff in the uh, late 1960s, early 1970s. I was absolutely fascinated by um, the statistical side of the game. I suppose uh, some people could have uh, regarded me as a walking wisdom or something like that. But it was those numerical facts that really did appeal to me. But as my own career has developed... Uh, my own professional career has developed as a historical geographer and then uh, as an author. I've moved very much in uh, now. I'm more aligned uh, to the H's, the historians, and obviously have published widely on the on the history of the game here, here in Wales and also other parts of the UK. So many of the members of the association uh, would be uh, fall into the category of S or maybe H, but I'm S and H, and many uh, leading figures in the association today fulfil both uh, roles. We are keen, as I say, that um, all matters to do with statistics are properly uh, dealt with, and we have many members uh, of the association who work for either the Wisdom, the Cricketing Bible, who work for Cricket Archive, who, which would be regarded as uh, a treasure trove of online cricket statistics and scorecards of, and information. We also have as our president, uh, David Kendix, uh, a very well-known uh, statistician, and someone who is the official, I, uh, he, he wears a hat as the ICC statistician. So all matters relating to statistics, to various other uh, issues about status of games, things like that. Uh, that is uh, where uh, currently the ACS plays a role with David representing uh, us at ICC level and being the being the person as well who the ECB uh, contact. I'm also the chair of the of, of the Association of Scorers in Professional Cricket. And so that's my S uh, element. Uh, but um, the England and Wales Cricket Board uh, turned to people like David and myself and the committees, uh, the ASP, the, the Association of Scorers in Professional Cricket have a have a committee of well-known scorers and are also well-known statisticians. So I sort of have a foot in both camps and help to make sure that we are not only preserving the history of this great game, but also what we're doing is making sure that uh, everything that happens both now and in the future is all done properly in terms of the heritage and the long history of the game. For just one example, uh, another eminent member of the association, Philip Bailey, uh, when it came to drawing up early lists for match classifications, and that I must say was a part of the association's uh, uh, early work, and it, the early members were very keen to have lists and classifications. When was the first great match? When was the when was the first first class game? Uh, 
but then with the involvement of limited over matches certainly in the uk from 1963 onwards uh, so it was philip bailey who actually coined the phrase list a of course that's now used widely by statisticians throughout the world but what philip did was he drew up uh, a listing of matches list a which he felt were the inverted commas proper ones then list b were the ones which may not have been in list c etc so uh, it's been the classification, the drawing up of lists and, and trying to assemble um, an agreed and a uniform uh, set of um, parameters by which matches can be treated by statisticians. Obviously, that's very important. Uh, for example, when we're trying to work out how many hundreds, let's say, did a certain player score in their career. So over the years, eminent uh, statisticians like Irving Rosenwater, before that, if we go back um, into uh, the late 19th and early 20th century, when books were brought out listing all sorts of matches, there were, in the case of W.G. Grace, some games where his performances were regarded as being first class, but no one else's were. So all of these little um, irregularities, etc., have been smoothed out. And we now, the ACS, working in conjunction with Wisdom, as I say, with ICC and other governing boards, we now have a recognised set of parameters by which the games can be recorded. So um, that in particular is one of the key roles of the association. But we also publish many, many books. And uh, I'm delighted to say I'm uh, the uh, editor of uh, both a statistical book, the second 11 annual. Uh, sorry, I'm the, the assistant uh, editor, I should say, for that, and overseer on behalf of the committee. But I'm the editor of a series called Cricket Witness, which is uh, his, an historical series looking at many aspects of the history of this great game. We, the association, have also published many books, little biographies. The one, one of the excellent series is called Lives in Cricket. We've also had a series called Famous Cricketers, which lists the statistical achievements as well as the biographical achievements of a whole host of famous players. We have a worldwide remit and uh, we have a worldwide membership. In fact, uh, only a couple of years ago, I was helping to put together a book on cricket in Malaysia. And I'm glad to say the association will hopefully fairly soon be publishing a book on uh, the history of cricket in Mexico. So uh, we are not just a group of Anglophobes just focused on cricket in the UK. Uh, we have a worldwide remit and as I say, we are preserving and celebrating the history of this great game. Absolutely. And that, that's what it's all about, isn't it? You, you do it because you're passionate about the history and, and, and wanting to um, educate and, and teach that to other people. Isn't that right, um, that, Andrew? Ab absolutely. And uh, people can become members of the association in a, in a very simple way. All they have to do is 
type into Google Association of Cricket Statisticians and Historians, if you actually type in the, the letters ACS, you go to the American Chemical Society. Well, I'm sure that I'm sure that's a very worthwhile and august association. But if you want your cricket fix, um, Association of Crickets, Association of Cricket Historians and Statisticians, um, uh, Google that, or Association of Cricket Statisticians and Historians. Either way you do it, you will come to the ACS website. And we will uh, welcome you uh, with open arms. Members receive a, a, a quarterly journal. There are various other uh, booklets members can purchase. Obviously, the books are available are available for purchase by non-members as well. We are having in October a fiftieth uh, anniversary, a Golden Jubilee lunch as well, where a very eminent cricket statistician will be addressing hopefully uh, a, a large gathering and we'll have a suitable uh, lunch in Leicester at which I'm hoping that there'll be around seven of our founder members still with us and who will be able to raise a glass to the association. Absolutely. Uh, celebrate 50 years, the half century. Raise the bat, as they say in, in cricket. Um, well, I think... I think I'll be raising my scoring pen. Uh, so, uh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's wonderful to hear. And let's talk about your journey in cricket. <coughs> um, um, let's talk about how you got into cricket, your your um, journey and discovering this great game. So tell us what sparked your interest in cricket statistics in history. You touched on a little bit about that there. So what was the interest towards the stats in the history of the game? What made you want to gravitate towards that well I think an, I think a, an interesting cricket is a life sentence uh, but uh, I was very lucky as I mentioned earlier uh, in the in the late 1960s to go to a, a very good uh, primary school here in Cardiff the capital of Wales and the school I went to uh, there, there there was an element of teaching in, in the Welsh language as well as in the English language. And it has to be said that uh, the school I was at also then was a feeder for the girls in the class to go to one of the private schools, uh, fee-paying uh, fee schools in Cardiff. At the time, there wasn't a, a fee-paying school for boys, so we were a little bit miffed that all of our very nice uh, young ladies in our class would end up going to the girls' school. and But anyway, one of the bonuses uh, for me being at the uh, school in North Cardiff, the primary school, was that in my class was uh, a, a chap called Neil, whose father just happened to be the wicketkeeper for Glamorgan County Cricket Club. Uh, the gentleman concerned was David Evans. And at the primary school I was in in Cardiff, through um, Neil's influence and uh, David's influence, various members of the Glamorgan team came to the school to do coaching and outreach work. And I'd been quite fascinated uh, just growing up and playing cricket in the 1960s as a schoolboy. Don't forget that was uh, in, in 1968, that was when 
uh, Glamorgan beat the Australians at Swansea. 1968, of course, was also the year when Malcolm Nash was hit for six sixes by Gary Sobers, also at Swansea. And in 1969, Glamorgan were the county champions for the second time in their history, having been county champions before in 1948. So I became quite immersed in the game. Most of the my friends at the school, we also played cricket. We got, as I said, we had some basic coaching. And what happened was that the, then the secondary school I went to, as I said, Neil was there, uh, the son of David Evans. And again, the school that I was at had very strong links with Glamorgan cricket. I had some absolutely mad keen teachers my geography and my English uh, teachers both were uh, decent players themselves, club cricketers, although uh, my English master would have been good enough to have played county cricket had he not uh, opted to uh, move into the world of education. So it came quite natural then, having been um, coached by the, um, as I say, being coached by county professionals, to then go along and to watch Glamorgan. So I went to the Sapphire Gardens ground in Cardiff. I went to the St. Helens ground in Swansea and various others with my school friends. And again, knowing the players, it, it was absolutely fantastic. Now, my own playing wasn't brilliant, although I, I could hold a bat and I was a, hmm. I was a bit of a wicketkeeper, a, a, a shocking leg spin bowler, it must be uh, said. But um, I was often not, I was in the uh, 12, but I didn't make the final 11. And of course, the, that lovely phrase, lovely phrase, 12th man and scorer. Now, what had, what had actually happened was that in my, um, in my primary school, one of the teachers, a man called Mr. Reed, who'd also been quite a high level football referee, as well as a mad keen cricket person mr reed one afternoon during the 1968 ashes series actually one rainy summer's day he actually taught us how to score he wanted of course to follow the progress in the ashes series between england and australia uh so he he, he either turned i can't remember whether it was the radio or television but he turned it on and um we couldn't go outside to play so what he said is, okay, I'll show you what scoring is. So he gave us all bits of graph paper. We all had pencils. And I was fascinated. This amazing code that you put down dots and you put down um, various symbols for what happened. And it was great to sit there scoring in real time. Of course, he was delighted because uh, he was able to follow the England team's progress. So um, I got this fascination as I say with scoring I was pretty sharp when it came to uh, numbers so work going along following Glamorgan a couple of opportunities came during the mid 1970s and the late 1970s then to actually score at, at matches uh, there would have been a public address announcer who would have needed someone alongside to tell them uh, how many fours or sixes the batter hit. And I actually started scoring second team games for Glamorgan. I made my first 11 debut 
in the summer of 1978. Now, by that time, I'd just started. I, In the summer of 1978, I'd left uh, school, having got A-levels in geography, geology, and English, and I was about to start my first degree at Exeter University. So it was great to actually, in the summer holidays, to work for Glamorgan, to be paid for scoring, absolutely fantastic. And it nurtured my love of cricket statistics. I have to admit that my grant uh, in my early months at Exeter University, uh, my grant actually went on purchasing uh, cricket books. There were some excellent antiquarian bookshops, both in Exeter and back home in Cardiff. And so I started to build up a library of wisdoms and various other books, and I just got immersed in the great game. Then in 1981, I was very lucky to uh, be approached by BBC Radio Wales. BBC had just opened up a sports department at Broadcasting House in Cardiff, and they were looking to start ball-by-ball commentary of Glamorgan matches, especially on a Sunday afternoon when the Sunday League games were taking place. There had been excellent television coverage beforehand in the 1960s and in the 1970s, but ball-by-ball commentary on the radio was something new. So I ended up working uh, for... uh, 25 years as the scorer statistician on BBC Radio Wales, chipping in now and again with microphone in hand to to, uh, proudly say how many balls Matthew Maynard or Hugh Morris had faced uh, and how many fours or sixes, all the sort of things, uh, I I guess at the time, that Bill Frindle and uh, uh, other people uh, associated with Test Match Special would have done. In... 1982, I also commenced on uh, a PhD in historical geography at Cardiff University, although I have to say that whilst I was studying the newspapers and other records, primarily to look at the way the suburban development was taking place, when I was looking at the newspapers, I would start obviously in the back page in the summer, and I would actually read and uh, transcribe some of the cricket scores before moving on to the uh, areas of greater academic interest. I was lucky enough in the summer of 1982 and 1983 to also act as Glamorgan's first 11 scorer. The gentleman who would previously occupied that role uh, was an octogenarian, and by, um, as I say, by those years, he was just finding life on the county circuit to be a little bit too much. I was offered in 1984 the opportunity to be a full-time cricket scorer, but there was no winter work. And uh, I therefore decided to continue with my PhD studies and also then to work at weekends and other times with the BBC as their scorer statistician. By this time, I'd also become Glamorgan's uh, official statistician. I'd taken over from a gentleman called Wayne Thomas and another gentleman called Michael Morgan, who had actually had assembled a lot of Glamorgan's first-class records and was starting to do a lot of their limited over and list A stats. So together with Wayne, I was able to build up and uh, add to Glamorgan's statistical records. So during the 1980s, during the 1990s, 
And then into the early noughties, I was combining a role as a schoolmaster with working on the radio. I taught in various schools, independent schools in Devon and in latterly then in Somerset. And in 2004, sadly, the Glamorgan first 11 scorer, uh, but, uh, Gordon Lewis, passed away. And this was in March, literally two weeks before the start of the first game of the 2004 season. By that time, things had also changed at the Sophia Gardens ground. There were new buildings going up. There was there were plans to redevelop the ground. I'd been involved as a consultant looking at various aspects regarding the uh, setting up a learning centre. Uh, Glamorgan did have a, a schools visits programme. But what I was uh, asked to do was, okay, how could we celebrate the rich heritage of cricket in Wales at our new stadium? How could we be a centre of excellence, not just for Glamorgan cricket, but a centre of excellence for Welsh cricket? Something about which I'd written several books back in the late 1980s and again in the, in the 1990s. So little did I realise that whilst I was sat in these uh, meetings helping uh, Glamorgan staff and committee to plan uh, for these new facilities. Little did I think that in 2004, the chief executive of, Gl of Glamorgan County Cricket Club would then come to me and say, look, Andrew, these developments, hopefully we're going to get the green light. Do you want to come on board and you can be first team scorer as well? So my life changed. Uh, my road to Damascus, as it were, was actually an Iceland air uh, flight because uh, when we landed after an A-level geography and geology field trip to the country of Iceland, not the supermarket I hasten to add, but after uh, landing at Heathrow, uh, I received on my mobile phone a text message to get in touch with the Glamorgan Chief Executive and as I say it didn't take me too long after consulting with my wife to uh, move back full-time to Cardiff. I did do a little bit of part-time teaching at the Sixth Form College here for a while, but we raised sufficient funds to set up the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket, which has subsequently become the first fully accredited cricket museum in the UK. So we have an archive and uh, a vast collection of, well, certainly well over 10,000 photographs, as well as over 100 uh, artifacts relating to the history, the rich history and heritage of the game in Wales. It also serves as a learning centre and uh, having, I mentioned earlier, growing up in Cardiff, having had Glamorgan players come to the school, now I'm part of a, I now lead up the education team at Glamorgan County Cricket Club and we have uh, certainly pre-COVID in 2019, we had 22,000 young people that year come to the ground to learn about the history of the game, uh, to play softball cricket, to get the cricket fix and to watch games as well, On I'm glad to say on free tickets, and to do everything that I did in my early years in short trousers back in the 1960s, and now here I am with long trousers, helping to share my passion and my love for the great game. <coughs> that was um, quite fascinating listening to your 
to journey there, Andrew. And, and you must be extremely lucky to have this opportunity to um, be a part of a sport that you admired so much from your f formative years until now. Yeah, I'm. Um, people often ask me, you know, when my wife and I go to social meetings or you meet people for the first time, and what do you do for your, you know, what is your job? Well, I think I can say that I'm unique in the sense that I'm the only uh, full-time professional cricket scorer and historian in Wales. And as far as the scoring is concerned on the county circuit, I'm one of the few people to actually have a full-time contract with the county. Most of the scorers will be employed during just the summer months or even on a match-by-match -match basis. But I've got a full, you know, I'm salaried, I'm based at, at the Sophia Gardens ground full-time. And um, on match days, I fulfil other roles as first 11 scorer, as stadium announcer, and uh, helping with the match management. And that, of course, includes the international matches. And one of my proudest moments uh, as a scorer or as, as even a cricket person, was being at Cardiff in 2009, the opening uh, match of the 2009 Ashes series. It was the first time that an Ashes match had been played, not in England or Australia, but in Wales. And to be part of that, uh, those five days, uh, Monty Panassar and Jimmy Anderson blocking uh, uh, out the last 50-odd balls to save the game. And as I say, with my role as stadium announcer at Sophia Gardens to also pick up the microphone at various stages during the Ashes Test in 2009 and to welcome people. I do speak a little bit of Welsh. Uh, so to welcome people and to say a few things as well together with the ECB's match announcer uh, during that game in 2009. That was probably one of my proudest moments. I have to say, though, that in terms of results, in 2015, the opening test of the Ashes series again held in Cardiff. On this particular occasion, though, on the fourth evening, uh, Joe Root took a brilliant catch on the boundary's edge as Australia were dismissed. And to actually be part of an England winning Ashes Test uh, setup was absolutely fantastic. And uh, I know Glamorgan were playing the next day in Chelmsford, and uh, I travelled then from uh, South Wales to the London area, and I was absolutely buzzing because I knew that I would have been the first uh, Glamorgan scorer to actually score and uh, take part in a winning Ashes match. And uh, they they can't take that away from you. Just going back to the 2009 Ashes test in Cardiff, it was, uh, as I said, the first uh, test match in Wales. And Cardiff, the Sophia Gardens ground, became the world's 100th test match venue. And so to be part of that, to see the ground change, to play a role in the way the ground has been transformed from a park into a fantastic international cricket stadium that has made all the long hours of blood sweat tears and toil in record offices 
trying to find out information about the long history and heritage of cricket in Wales, which goes back to the 1770s, I hasten to add, to be part of, uh, as I say, uh, the team in 2000, the scoring team in 2009, and again in 2015, that's made everything so worthwhile. Absolutely. Um, did you have any cricketing idols growing up, some people that you admired watching the game? I would say Jeffrey Boycott um, would, um, uh, John Edrich as well, um, was um, uh, those two, Boycott and Edrich, just watching initially on television, just watching, as I say, the 1960 black and white footage from 1968. I, I, I've got vague memories of watching the game in six, in 66 and 67, but of course in 1966, it was the Football World Cup. And uh, I've got much stronger memories in 1968, especially the uh, final uh, game at the Oval when uh, I was I was glued to the television at home. Uh, but my parents were having a, some new carpets and they said, look, Andrew, there's not going to be any play at the Oval. Look, it's huge thunderstorm. It's a washout. Let's go into town and let's decide on these new carpets. So anyway, so I... We jumped on the bus, went into town, and I was a little bit, I was thinking, well, you never know what might happen. And we went to the large department store in the centre of Cardiff, and the televisions were there, and there was a group of people clustered around. Because, of course, as we now know, loads of people had mocked up at the Oval, and play was about to restart. So my parents were quite happy to leave me there, standing with this throng of people, watching Derek Underwood work his way through the Australian lineup like a hot knife through butter, uh, whilst my parents were uh, deciding on the on the particular colour of carpet, etc. I was more I so I I we came home on the bus. My parents were happy having purchased the carpet, and I was happy having watched Derek Underwood uh, bowl at Australia. So um, those are those are some of my collective early memories. I suppose really when. Um, I then um, started watching Glamorgan. I, I would have to say that uh, Alan Jones, the uh, the, the left-handed opening batter, uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, his brother Ivion Jones is the wicketkeeper, and just getting to know them, getting to know the Glamorgan players, and just being being accepted uh, as part of the Glamorgan cricket family. And over the years, getting to know people I've mentioned earlier, like Hugh Morris, Matthew Maynard, Steve Watkin, Robert Croft, you know, the list is, I could I could rattle them off and, uh, you know, bore the pants off you. But it uh, cricket is a team game at the end of the day. Yeah. But it is a game with individual batters and bowlers. And I, But I would have to say that um, actually watching and then knowing the likes of Alan Jones, Don Shepherd. Ivan Jones, uh, what what great cricketers, but also most importantly, what wonderful men and what what wonderful people as well. In more recent times, Peter Walker, uh, who of course was uh, a fine broadcaster as well, as well as an administrator with the Cricket Board of Wales. Very sadly, Peter died at the start of uh, COVID back in 2020, but um, it was rubbing shoulders with people like him rubbing shoulders with other great names uh in 
in Glamorgan cricket and getting to know uh, people in English cricket. Um, it's been a real privilege and an honour. Absolutely. Um, last question, just before we move on to our, our next discussion point. Um, what advice would you give to someone who wants to become a statistician or <coughs> historian uh, within cricket or for any amateur statistician or historians, someone like myself who's just doing it for a hobby and for pleasure? What, what tips would you give and advice? Well, I, I would say don't get put off. Use the internet. Use the wonderful treasure trove of uh, information uh, which is there. Uh, back in my early years uh, with the, the uh, working for Glamorgan, my early years working with the ACS as well, we were relying on scores that were published in newspapers, uh, scores which had been uh, picked up in books, going through score books as well. Nowadays, of course, all that information is digitized and there's you can sit in, in your homes and you can surf and you can get so much information. I The biggest advice I would say is if, if people find things which are wrong, if people find errors, if there's new information, only recently I acquired some brand new information about some early Glamorgan players of the 1920s. Um, it's a lifelong journey. And I'm even though, as I say, I've published widely, I don't say that everything is definitive. You keep finding things out. You keep adding. And uh, the advice I would say to someone who's starting off as a statistician, as a historian, is enjoy it. Let people know. Contact your uh, local cricket authority, whether that's um, a state in Australia, whether that's a district or a province in another country. In the UK, if you're um, in, attached to a county, whether it's a minor county or a first-class county, use the internet. Um, tweet. Um, let people know about some of the records and statistics. Join the ACS, of course, and uh, <clears throat> share and enjoy. That's the mantra that's been behind the ACS since that the founding meeting in uh, at Edgbaston in 1973. Share knowledge and enjoy the journey, and um, it's great. Absolutely, uh, absolutely, great advice there, Andrew. Um, for our next topic, Andrew, let's talk about the origins of cricket and how cricket got started and how the game of cricket became what it is uh, today. Um, all sports have a birthplace and can ba uh, base their origins from there. Cricket's birthplace was in England, of course. Um, cricket was a very different game in its early years compared to today. Cricket was played in wide open spaces in the countryside of England. Uh, cricket bats were in the shape of a hockey stick. The stumps were just only two stumps, no middle stump and just one bale across the top. And bowlers bowled underarm in those days, whereas today they bowl overarm. Um, so, Andrew, how did the game of cricket get started and established? And who invented uh, the great game of cricket? Well, no one knows who invented the game. Um, it's somewhere in the mists of time. It's a little bit like the trying to search for the Holy Grail. You mentioned there that cricket began in England. Uh, there are some people who think actually it may have had its origins maybe in northern France. 
they I, I'm sure you may have played like I played as a schoolboy in Cardiff uh, as I mentioned earlier um, a game of cricket called French cricket which was where you stood still uh, and you held the bat in front of your legs and people threw the ball at you and you then would hit it and you people would count up the number of hits that you made as opposed to a number of uh, runs. There was a variant of that called tip cat or stool ball, which was where, again, you would stand with your feet together with the bat, you would uh, hit the ball, you would run then to a peg or a stool and run back again, a little bit like the type of softball cricket that you might be familiar with that uh, kids play uh, these days. But certainly in terms of what we would call um, the modern uh, or the early modern form of cricket, the origins were in the weald of southern England. That's a broad area of downland, as you said, meadowland that uh, spans uh, Sussex, also um, fringes parts of southern Surrey, western Kent, and uh, from Sussex, as I say, going across to Hampshire. There were some thriving villages. There were some cottage industries there in the Weald uh, where various minerals and other products were uh, being used. But by and large, it was an agrarian, a rural society. And the early origins of cricket are very much uh, rural. It is at the end of the day, often said that cricket began in the villages. And one of those villages was Hambledon. Hambledon in Hampshire, Broad Haightney Down. And alongside the uh, ground at Broad Haightney Down is the Batten Ball Inn. And it may well have been that what began as a pastime for the young boys and men looking after uh, tending their flocks uh, on the downland what had begun as a, a simple um, pastime actually then metamorphosed into a far more serious game. And Hambledon, if the uh, annals are uh, to be believed, uh, Hambledon actually were good enough, a village, were able to actually beat the All England team. It wasn't necessarily people from throughout the uh, the country. It was probably just a group of uh, other people invited to take part in the game on Broad Haightney Down. I mentioned the pub, and one of the other reasons for playing games would have been socialising, uh, people meeting up, having a jolly good time. Again, in the villages, games would have taken place on feast days, on festivals, maybe celebrating the harvest coming in. Don't forget, games would have been played possibly into October, possibly into early November as well. So there were all these important days in the rural calendar where people got together at the market towns. And if you got a gathering of people together, then cricket would have been played. There were challenges as well uh, between groups of people for certain sums of money or possibly paying for the food in the pub uh, after play. But Quite importantly, during the 18th century, there was a shift of the game from the rural areas into urban areas. And it is uh, that shift into the cities, which was probably 
one of the most important uh, aspects in the development of the game. For example, in uh, the case of Southern England, the uh, cricket ground at Lords became established in 1787. The Marylebone Cricket Club, the MCC, not to be confused, of course, with the same organisation in Melbourne, but the MCC became established in 1787 at St John's Wood. Thomas Lord had, uh, had, had they had played cricket at other locations, but Thomas Lord secured some land at St John's Wood. The MCC became founded, and as I say, they also helped to codify the game and produce a standard set of playing regulations. In cricket, we say laws, we tend not to say rules. The first set of rules had, uh, in fact, uh, been created in about 1744, I think it was. But it was the MCC variant which became widely adopted. So in other words, you would have uh, 11 players in a team, there would be umpire scorers, various other things. And it was the MCC laws of the game which became widely accepted. There had been regional variants. Sometimes there had been seven aside, eight aside, single wicket matches, two aside. In fact, in 1844, a gentleman called William Clark, who was the owner of the Trent Bridge Inn, at Nottingham, he actually helped to, to found uh, a wandering professional team called the All England Eleven. And uh, William Clark, in particular, uh, one of the early entrepreneurs in the game, uh, having this group of wandering professionals going around playing local teams, and they could have been uh, teams of 15, 18, 22, or even more against the crack paid professionals and matches were staged for wages people would turn up in fact it had happened in Sheffield at the Darnell ground from about the 1820s onwards there were matches at which you could turn up you could pay some money to go in and watch and you could bet you could gamble on who scored the most runs who would who would take the most wickets how many runs would a team score who were going to be the winners. So this idea that gambling and uh, the involvement of money is a is a recent uh, acquisition by cricket, that, that premise is completely false. There has been money involved in cricket way, way back, as I say, into the early 19th century. And who knows, maybe some of those early games in, this, in the 18th century when wages were struck, maybe money was the root also uh, of uh, the teams actually getting together and playing. Of course, just to finish this answer, we don't have a full picture. Uh, we don't have a listing where someone wrote down, this is the first game of cricket. Uh, we know that a gentleman called John Derrick in uh, the middle of the 16th century, uh, 1548, I think it was, uh, in Guildford, appeared in court. And during his testimony, he was talking about playing cricket uh, way back 
um, sorry, he appeared in court in 1598, and he said, I remember playing cricket 50 years ago. So if you take 50 years off 1598, you go back to 1548. So cricket being played in Surrey then, and it, it's only these partial records that uh, exist. So what we, again, in the association, in the ACS, what we've done is we've We've picked up these fragments from newspapers, from diaries, from people's journals and court records, and we've been able to piece together this fascinating story of the evolution of the game. But as to who invented it, I'm afraid we still don't know. It's probably a remain answerless, probably, for years to come, who actually invented the game. So it's um, something that will be a mystery, I suppose, uh, for years to come. But it was good what, to hear that. Sorry. Yeah, what we do know when we move into the 19th century, obviously the uh, introduction of the Penny Post, uh, uh, newspapers, both national as well as provincial, more and more games were then being recorded. And uh, rather than games taking place informally, and it's only through letters that you find out a game took place. In fact, here in Wales, the first uh, two references to cricket taking place are quite interesting. The first one dates from 1771 in uh, the letters column for a newspaper called the General Evening Post, where a gentleman from Swansea wrote a letter complaining that the, the young boys and youths of the town of Swansea, a very large copper smelting centre at the time, but he complained how the young boys and youths on a Sunday were getting together to play cricket, but were swearing and using oaths rather than being at home and reading their Bibles. Well, if their Bible was wisdom, I could understand that. But that's 1771 in the letters column, evidence that cricket was being played. And then in 1783, a game took place uh, in Carmarthenshire in West Wales. And there are letters written by uh, one of the leading members of uh, local politics uh, from one man to another, one of his political allies, and saying, well, how about I challenge you to a game of cricket on Court Henry Down I will bring 11 men. Can you bring 11 men? We'll start and at a given time and we'll then go to the nearby pub for a nice meal. And basically, whoever wins, whoever loses the game will uh, pay for the, uh, for the food and drink. So it's fragments like that. But when it comes to the advent of newspapers, uh, where, and again, with industrial pride, where, and civic pride, where teams representing these thriving industrial places wanted everyone to know how good a place it was, how successful the uh, inhabitants had been at winning games of cricket. What we mustn't forget as well is that there were influences in the schools, uh, in the universities, and the move of cricket into the cities. Uh, I mentioned the MCC earlier on. Uh, cricket very much uh, became adapted by the gentry. There are uh, references to various members of the royal family going to watch games at, law, uh, at Lords. 
and members of the gentry, Lord X and Lord Y, were prominent members of these of these clubs. And it seemed to be that playing cricket was very much uh, a good and a godly game, very much, as I say, through the writings of Kingsley in the uh, in the what we tend to call the paradigm of, of of muscular Christianity. We only have to pick up books like Tom Brown's School Days and uh, see again the 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 way in which playing cricket was seen to be very moralizing and also very good for you in the sense that you adhered to rules. If the umpire gave you out, you walked and it, you were being very manly and also being very healthy. There have been various books published by the ACS uh, looking at the, the use of children's literature in telling these stories. But just in terms of the records of the game, when, it, when we move now into the 1850s, the 1860s, where we have teams in England now visiting Australia, touring uh, abroad, obviously there was a lot of interest we have uh, uh, in terms of uh, nation building and empire building, cricket being used as uh, a moralizing or in the words of some people, a civilizing influence uh, in parts of the empire. So we have games now and or English players going abroad, playing in the winter, and of course, they wanted to let people know how well they were doing. So reports appear during the winter months. And of course, that leads very nicely into the evolution of test cricket and the first ever test taking place between England and Australia in 1877. Yes, um, absolutely. So it was good to hear about the, the origins of the game and and how the game's changed and evolved um, from those early days until now. It's quite fascinating listening to you uh, speak there, Andrew, about that. Um, to finish off our discussion today, Andrew, for our last topic, let's talk about the Ashes, seeing that the Ashes are coming up later this year in England. Um, Andrew, you would agree the Ashes is full of history, which stretches over 141 years since 1882, um, and it's a long, rich cricketing history really um, over the years between Australia and England and Ashes battles. Um, so Andrew, how important is it to preserve and tell the story about the Ashes, especially to up and coming cricket fans who may be just discovering test cricket or the game of cricket in general? Well, it it's a romantic tale and it, it just shows how nations have come together it shows, in the case of Bodyline in the 1930s, how nations nearly fell apart. But it does show the strong links between the two nations. <coughs> As I say, it is a romantic story. And to go back to the test at the Oval in uh, the summer of 1881, we have to actually uh, just consider some quite important parts of English social history, and in particular the fact that uh, the thriving, the teeming Victorian cities were running out of space for traditional graveyards and places of burying bodies. Now, without going into all the gory details, 
during the late 1870s and the early 1880s, cremation became an accepted uh, way uh, rather than burying a body. And it was very much in the news during uh, the 1881 Ashes series and the victory of the Australian team at the Oval, which uh, probably would have, um, uh, for the uh, traditional uh, English men and women who were watching, this was, oh, my word, you know, these these colonials uh, winning uh, on English soil. So a newspaper uh, printed a mock obituary of English cricket. And at the bottom, it said the body uh, will be cremated and the ashes will be taken to Australia. That little line then in keeping with what was happening, as I said, in terms of the disposal of bodies within uh, Victorian cities in the UK. Well, to then take that story on a year, uh, the Honourable Ivo Bly, captaining uh, then the England team the following winter out in Australia, and he met uh, in uh, various parts of Melbourne uh, a lovely lady uh, who he fell in love with, and the English team, the players, uh, happened to play a very light-hearted game in the grounds of the house where this lady happened to be a music teacher. And having met and fallen in love with uh, Ivo Bly, the captain of the England team, she basically wanted to just, obviously in those days, say thank you to him and uh, give him as something as a keepsake. Now, people aren't quite sure whether the bottle that she chose the terracotta urn as it were uh, was it a perfume bottle probably uh, from her uh, lady's chamber and what was inside well did they burn a ball did they burn a bale did they burn something else something else but they pasted onto the little urn uh, they had this newspaper article and again uh, pasted on it uh, the words, the ashes were used, and the lady handed over to Ivo Bly this little urn. Now, he kept it. Uh, the story goes that on the long journey by ship back to uh, the UK, uh, there, were only, there was only one thing on his mind, and that was uh, actually this lovely lady that he just met. When he got back to the UK, he asked his father, uh, uh, permission to uh, marry this lady. Of course, permission was given. And she travelled uh, to the UK. They had a large family. And it was only then in the 1920s that this little urn was discovered uh, at the home of uh, the Bly family. By then, he was Lord Darnley. And when they were going through his artifacts, uh, his children said, oh, look, isn't this a lovely romantic story, how mum and dad got together, etc., etc." And so they decided in, in the late 1920s to present the urn to the MCC. 
So those early games up until then between England and Australia weren't really Ashes test matches. It was only after the donation of the urn to the MCC that people thought, no, wouldn't that be a lovely little trophy for this series between England and Australia? So that's the background to the Ashes. So it's a love story, uh, but it's also, again, celebrating everything that is proper and right about uh, going about things, asking permission, etc., things like that. And there's a little bit of humour there as well. But what a lovely romantic story. Absolutely. And what people tend to forget is that the Ashes urn is not a trophy. It's a symbol of love. It's a, as you said, with Ivo Blind, Florence Murphy. Um, Absolutely. Florence Murphy, um, I think they had seven children. And um, Florence, it, it, rather than calling it Florence's Cup or, or the Lord Darnley Trophy, uh, but just call it the Ashes. Isn't that isn't that lovely? It is. Um, it is. It's it's quite an interesting story. Um, you mentioned body line, Andrew, and let's talk about that. One of the most dis uh, difficult periods of Ashes <coughs> uh, body line in 1932-33, where England captain Douglas Jardine devised the tactic to contain the genius that was Sir Donald Bradman. Um, Jardine apparently watching some footage of Bradman in the 1930s Ashes series during the test match of the Oval, he saw Bradman looking a bit uncomfortable batting against short pitch bowling. And apparently Jardine leapt up and called out, I've got it, he's yellow. Um, from there, the notion of leg theory involving short pitch bowling was developed and setting a dominant leg side field. Um, the years that followed, the laws were changed and you can't have more than two fielders behind square on the leg side. Otherwise, it's a no ball. And that sort of stemmed from uh, what happened in body line, obviously. Um, I can see why Jardine uh, devised the tactic, because in 1930, Bradman had a wonderful series. He scored 974 runs, which remains a record for the most runs to be scored in an Ashes series and also in a Test series. Um, at an average of 139, four centuries, highest score of 334, which he got at Headingley, um, scored 300 of those runs in a day. The only batter in test test matches to uh, to score three hundred runs in a day, um, he scored two fifty four at Lords in in that series as well, which he considered that innings to be his uh, best in test matches. Uh, Sedon, so for Jardine to find a weakness to expose must have given England hope when they toured Australia in nineteen thirty two thirty three, and and uh, Jardine was determined to win the Ashes back, which. He was successful um, in that series because England won 4-1 of the best of five. And, and obviously Jardine had previously toured Australia. He was there in 1928-29, the English side that won the Ashes uh, that series and also played in Don Bradman's first ever test match along with Harold Larwood. Um, and, um, you know, England won by big margins. They won the first test in Sydney by 10 wickets. At Australia bounced back in Melbourne in the second test. They won by 11 runs. The third test match in Adelaide, England won by 338 runs. The fourth test in Brisbane, England won by six wickets. And the last test in Sydney again, England won by eight wickets. And um, it, it was a, a very controversial series indeed. But it did have an effect on, on Bradman himself. He only scored 396 runs at an average of 56, um, one century in 350s. Uh, not, not a bad series for any 
batter. But in terms of Bradman's standards, uh, standards in Test cricket, they're very poor, unlike in um, 1930. Um, he didn't play the first test due to illness. He only uh, came back for the second test. Um, after missing the first test, he scored a century. He batted for over 185 minutes, and that's where uh, he scored that century in Melbourne. So he got out for a golden duck in that in that game, bowled by Bill Bowes, the England bowler. But um, it was the third test match in Adelaide that um, tensions were at a tipping point, Andrew, um, especially when there was nearly a potential riot um, in the third test of the series. Uh, with riot police being called at the Adelaide Oval. Um, Australian captain Bill Woodford got hit on the heart while batting. Uh, Jardine called out to Larwood and said, well bowled, Harold. Um, a move aimed to unsettle Bradman at the non-strikers end at the time. Um, and then it's well known now that MCC manager Plum Warner went into the Australian dressing rooms to see if Woodford was okay, and Woodfield reportedly replied, I don't, I don't want to uh, see you, Mr Warner. There are two sides out there. One is trying to play cricket. The other is not. And then it was later reported, he added, uh, the game is too good to be spoiled. It's time for some people got out of it. And also in that test match, Australian wicketkeeper Bert Oldfield got struck on the head while batting in that test match. Um, so thank goodness there, there wasn't a riot that eventuated from that. But the crowd in Adelaide were not pleased. And that's where tension sort of boiled over there. So... So, Andrew, tell us more about Douglas Jardine. Who was he as a person? And same with Harold Larwood. And how did the two countries go about mending the relationship after Bodyline? Because it was a very difficult period for both Australia and England um, when Bodyline took place. Well, you've just given an excellent summary there of Bodyline in Australia. But what you haven't said, and I'll go into detail now, is in fact that the first bit of bodyline bowling actually took place in Wales. <clears throat> um, let's go back to the summer of 1932 and during August the announcement of the MCC touring party to Australia uh, that winter. Douglas Jardie, as you said, of the uh, had been appointed captain and various other members of the team included the Nottinghamshire pair of fast bowlers, Harold Larwood and Bill Vos. Uh, Harold Larwood, quite a uh, relatively short squat figure, uh, but a very fast, very skiddy bowler. Bill Vos as well. Both of them were regarded as uh, the most fearsome fast bowlers on the county circuit. Well, the domestic season finished with a game taking place at Cardiff Arms Park. That's the where the rugby ground is now in Cardiff. That's where Glamorgan played from 1921, I should say, till 1966. And the game at the end of the season involved Glamorgan playing against Nottinghamshire. And it was announced in the newspapers that Nottinghamshire would be experimenting with the leg theory bowling, which is what uh, it was talked about then. The leg theory bowling, which they were hoping to use, as you said, to great effect to, to contain the great Don Bradman. And it was said that the trial of leg theory would take place during Nottinghamshire's visit to Glamorgan. Well, this 
generated a lot of excitement. And in fact, uh, John Arlott, the doyen of uh, English cricket writers, has written about this as a schoolboy in Basingstoke, uh, riding with a friend by bicycle from his home to the railway station to Reading to catch the Great Western Railway Express to Cardiff. The reason John Arlott as a, as a youngster made the journey was that his hero, his idol as a youngster, was Maurice Turnbull. Now, Maurice Turnbull was the captain of Glamorgan, uh, educated at Cambridge University. He'd made his England Test match debut in 1929, and he, together with another gentleman called Johnny Clay, had turned uh, the club around. It had been a pauper, uh, losing money. But during the 1930s, Morris Turnbull and Johnny Clay turned the, uh, the debt-ridden Glamorgan into a cash-making exercise. But turning back to 1932, John Arlott and his friends were fascinated as to how Morris Turnbull, the England player and the Glamorgan captain, would cope with this hostile fast bowling. Well, I can tell you that... Uh, Glamorgan ended up scoring one of their highest ever individual scores. Maurice Turnbull made a fantastic double century. And Di Davis, the uh, stalwart batter for Glamorgan, a man who had worked in the steelworks in Clenetley, made a, a gritty, typical dower hundred as well, fending off the short pitch bowling that Larwood and Vos sent down. There were lot, lots of other journalists there who were reporting on the effectiveness. Of course, they were thinking that the, the meek and the callow Glamorgan batters would, uh, would crumble. But no, as I say, Turnbull, uh, time and again, hooking and square cutting this uh, volley of uh, short pitch bowling. Well, after play, uh, the as was obviously the custom in those days, the professional players would meet up in the nearby pubs and taverns in the centre of the town. The, the amateurs would go and dine in a nearby hotel. And the journalists who were covering the game, uh, both the local journalists as well as the national journalists, were eager to get Larwood and Vos's views on how body line, you know, the, the short pitch bowling will how do you feel when Morris Turnbull has, has rattled up almost a double hundred and uh, there's another hundred at the other end? So they were chasing a tail, as it were, as the, as the professionals gathered in the pub. Now, the story goes that the Nottinghamshire players were quite disillusioned by the surface. So they clambered their way back into the uh, Cardiff Arms Park ground. And I think probably the politest way for me uh, to say is they showed their contempt for the pitch by watering it. The story that uh, the Knotts players had clambered back into the ground, the news of that reached the ears of Maurice Turnbull, who was the Glamorgan captain, who was dining with Arthur Carr, the Nottinghamshire captain, just in the very nice grand hotel opposite the ground. Maurice Turnbull realised that the journalists had pick up, picked up on the story and that was the last thing that they really wanted in the newspapers the following day. So 
Morris Turnbull, even though it was now gone 11 o'clock at night, he headed down to the offices of the Western Mail newspaper in the centre of Cardiff. The local journalist, Harry Ditton, had uh, got the story. And uh, it was there, all being typeset back then on the, the huge metal frames in the printing press at the office of the Western Mail in Cardiff. But Morris Turnbull persuaded the editor of oh, the night editor, I should say, of the newspaper, not to run the story. Well, Harry Ditton had told other journalists about this, and they were hoping the following morning uh, to then be at the ground when Jack Nash, the groundsman at the Arms Park, would take off the covers, and maybe some yellowy, orangey uh, stains would appear on the pitch. Well, what had happened, of course, the story hadn't been run, and Morris Turnbull had gone back to see Jack Nash to make sure that the pitch had been repaired. So all the ever, all of the uh, watered bits of the pitch had been removed. So when the covers were removed, everything looked in pristine condition. And for many years, that story never saw the light of day. Morris Turnbull realising how bad it would be for the image of the game. Now, several journalists instead wrote that uh, I, if, if what Morris Turnbull and Di Davis had done to the Knotts bowling for Glamorgan, if uh, the England selectors, if Douglas Jardine had been there at Cardiff to watch what was going on, then maybe Bodyline wouldn't have taken uh, place. I know there were a lot of people who disapproved of the policy, even in domestic cricket, uh, when bodyline was then subsequently used, various players got hurt, and it was just looked upon as not being the way to go about things. As you said, the laws of the game were subsequently changed. Now, Larwood and Vos, and to an extent Jardine, was sort of ostracised, uh, and it... By and large, it was through the actions of the other players who realised, well, that's not actually the way we play the game. And uh, an important part in cricket history, uh, body line, an important part, leg theory, and certainly a realisation that uh, something which is now known as the spirit of cricket, uh, is, it, is it right that you bowl a a series of short pitch balls from around the wicket with fielders close in. It's now embraced, I think, in the spirit of cricket, the MCC spirit of cricket. And I think uh, it was a learning lesson for everyone. And again, if, uh, as I say, the uh, stories about uh, 1932, Nottinghamshire playing Glamorgan at Cardiff Arms Park, if people had seen then the way Morris Turnbull and others dealt with the volley of short pitch bowling, body line would never have happened mm, yeah, fascinating listening uh, to that how body line became to be um do we actually know where the term came from it wasn't known as body line it was known as leg theory but it was only body line when it um after england finished in australia uh, do we know where the term actually came from i think it were uh, various people i think bruce harris one of the journalists who wrote uh, for uh, books about it. I think he was one of several journalists who who coined the phrase because clearly uh, 
the bowlers were aiming for the body rather than the the stumps and um that i believe is the origin of the word yep um Andrew, let's talk about memories of Ashes cricket and Ashes moments. There's been so many in Ashes cricket over the years, but what are your memories of watching Ashes cricket over the years growing up or or even now? Well, as I said, 1968, my earliest Ashes memories there, standing in that department store in Cardiff watching uh, a television set. I suppose I have to, uh, as I mentioned earlier on, one of my boyhood heroes had been Jeff Boycott. So the 1977 series when Jeff Boycott actually uh, scored his 100th 100. But that would be a personal milestone for uh, Jeff Boycott on driving Greg Chappell and uh, taking off his cap and receiving the applause. But it was a... uh, I'll keep the Yorkshire theme going because I I would have to say the 1981 uh, series uh, has a special place in... Uh, my memories because I actually went to two of the Ashes tests uh, during that series. I went to the game at the Oval. I also went to the game at Edgbaston. And uh, the game, of course, that everyone from the 81 series remembers is the game at Headingley where uh, Ian Botham, together with the late Graham Dilley, turned things around and uh, so much has been written the story you know it, it's it's part of cricketing legend that england turned the game around bob willis again the late bob willis then came steaming in uh, and cleaned up the um australian batters i have to say though that um uh, my memories also go to the uh, centenary test uh, in uh, 1977. My memories also link in with the Packer series, World Series cricket. I know that's not Ashes cricket, hmm. but uh, I can remember uh, watching some of the games being played in pyjamas and in floodlights, and I can remember turning to my parents and saying, that'll never catch on, uh, uh, how, how wrong I was then. In more recent times, of course, at a personal level, the Ashes series uh, that I worked on in uh, in 2009 and again in, in 2015. I'd have to say the Ashes of uh, 2005, and from a, person, from a personal point of view, again, one of my uh, friends within the Glamorgan setup being Simon Jones. And purely from a personal point of view, having seen Simon when he first played for Glamorgan in the uh, late 1990s, seeing him go from a young boy into a young man. And then in 2005, seeing him being a member of the Fab Four, uh, so Hargard, Harmison, Flintoff and Jones, not anything to do with the Beatles, of course, but being a member of the Fab Four and for Simon to um, bowl so well uh, to produce uh, a six-wicket haul to uh, at uh, Old Trafford and to play his role in uh, an Ashes-winning series, absolutely fantastic. Those images of the England team on a on a open-top bus tour through London, the uh, gatherings in Trafalgar Square, some of the other stories which have uh, emanated over time. Uh, the 2005 probably would have to be in modern times. The, uh, one of the greatest series, certainly in the in the UK. But more recently, of course, 
uh, listening to the feats of Ben Stokes, who single-handedly, okay, I know Jack Leach was at the other end, uh, but uh, single-handedly to win a game. My wife and I were driving up from Somerset and uh, we had we listening, of course, to the commentary. And we had to pull over onto the hard shoulder to actually listen to the game. You know, we couldn't, ca it was just, you know, those, yeah. those final couple of overs. And there were so many other people uh, doing the same. And then um, you could just see the animation uh, and it, it, it was just absolutely astonishing. I'm hoping, of course, that the Ashes series of 2023 will tell another narrative and there'll be other heroes that the cricket statisticians and historians of the future can uh, celebrate. Yeah, that's right. Uh, probably writing their chapter in Ashes history, isn't that correct? Uh, 2023, it's an opportunity for new players to, to make their mark on Ashes cricket. Um, there's been so many moments. We've only touched on a few there, but Bob Massey's 16 wickets in 1972 at Lords. Jim Laker taking 90 wickets at Old Trafford in 1956. The great all-rounder from Australia, Keith Miller, taking 10 wickets in 1956. The Battle of the Ridge Test match at Lords in 1961, where Bill Laurie scored 130, facing Statham and Truman. Um, Glenn McGrath taking eight for 38 in 1997. 500 Test wickets in 2005 at Lords. Both of those achievements. Andrew Flintoff's 5 for 92 in 2009, announced his retirement in that series. Uh, we mentioned Hittingley 1981, Shane Warne, the late Shane Warne, his hat-trick in Melbourne in 94-95, and the ball of the century, of course, at Old Trafford in 93, uh, Warne and Gatting. Amazing Adelaide, 2006-07, the test match that Australia won from nowhere. And as we mentioned, the, the Ashes series of 2005, and Richie Benno's six for 70 in 1961 at Old Trafford, bowling Australia to victory and helped Australia uh, retain the ashes. And as we mentioned, Ben Stokes at Hindley in, in 2019. So there's so many ashes moments that we can name, Andrew. But in your opinion, what do you consider to be the greatest ashes moment um, if you had to base it off a historical base? Wow. Um I've got, let me give you two answers. Um, I would have to say the Ben Stokes achievement, um, single-handedly winning a game. But I think if you were to talk to so many people in the UK, that it would be the achievements of Ian Botham and Bob Willis, the, the England team, in the 1981 series uh, under the captaincy of Mike Brearley. Of course, the uh, the early games, it's been very well chronicled what happened in the 81, the beginning of the 81 series, and then how things were turned around. Now, I know people in Australia will say, well, how how strong was the, um, how strong was the Australian team? Well, okay. Um, I'll take that, but you can only play what's in front of you. But I would, I would say historically, a team to come back, um, famously, of course, uh, you know, five hundred to one, uh, to 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 actually have a series that changed so dramatically. I would also say as well, purely from a historical point of view, um, the TV schedules were completely rearranged. I know uh, during that match, Glamorgan were playing over in 
Gloucestershire at Bristol. I travelled over by train and I returned home having listened to, um, having listened on the radio to this remarkable transformation. Uh, at the time at, at, at Bristol, Javid Miandad and Rob Nyontong were also scoring hundreds for Glamorgan, but it wasn't putting me off too much. And I arrived back home thinking, right, well, I'll stay up to watch the highlights. But the TV schedules, the BBC had actually changed the schedules. So when I arrived at home, my parents were able to tell me, well, don't worry, Andrew, the, 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 there's this programme now with the, the highlights. It's going to be even earlier. So I think in that context, uh, that has to be a criterion for placing the events of 1981 up there. I know the events of 2005. A lot of people would say, as I mentioned, the celebrations in uh, London afterwards. What I would say is how different everything might have been had I had at the the last afternoon at the Oval had Shane Warne uh, not dropped Kevin Peterson, mm. um, and of course rain did intervene. But there weren't weather interruptions in the eighty-one series, and certainly as far as Messrs Botham and Willis were concerned, uh, what phenomenal! phenomenal uh, performances and then for me to go along as I say to uh, watch uh, other games and to see Dennis Lilly running in with his uh, uh, yellow bandana and people yeah. just chanting and cheering I would have to say that in 81 Ian Botham's performances inspired so many people and it captured the mood of the nation let's not forget that politically uh the UK at the time, with inner city riots, um, unrest, uh, labour concerns, cricket helped to put smiles back on people's faces. And uh, it, cricket was on the front page of newspapers for all the right reasons. Uh, absolutely. And Ian Botham was a, a wonderful cricketer. He could change games like that. Um, Hittingly, obviously, for a team to come back after following on doesn't really happen all that often in Test cricket. Uh, we recently saw that with New Zealand and England um, in that Test match that was played over in New Zealand recently. Uh, so it just shows how, how good of a cricketer was, he was and um, how he, he could change games um, in just a split second. Um, who do you think is going to win the Ashes this year, Andrew? Um, is it going to be a tight series, a close series, or do you think it's going to be... Uh, a foregone conclusion? I think it's going to be a very tight series. I'm going to be very intrigued how the Australian, the much vaunted Australian pace attack, cope with what we now know as baseball. So the uh, going, uh, rather than the old boycottian way of uh, yeah. grinding out of uh, maybe 50 by mid-afternoon and then maybe... Uh, knocking off the 100 just before the close of play, but scoring over 350, 400. Um, High-octane cricket, playing with freedom. I'm going to be quite intrigued as to how um, the Australian pace attack cope with that, especially on English pitches. And uh, I will say that there's a lot of confidence. Johnny Bairstow now uh, hoping to be fit. There's a lot of competition uh, for batting places within the uh, England team. I will say I think an awful lot is going to depend on how the English bowlers, uh, Anderson, Broad, Robinson, etc., plus Joffre Archer, how fit they remain um, 
and um, uh, obviously Anderson and Broad have had a fantastic uh, career at international level. I think it would be the icing on the cake for them to be part of an Ashes winning series. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say two-one uh, uh, in England's favour, and uh, I hope the celebrations in Trafalgar Square and the open top bus ride is uh, as exciting as it was back in 2005. Well, well, me being an Australian fan, of course, I hope that doesn't happen. I hope Australia win the series and retain the Ashes for another consecutive year, as we have for the last few Ashes series. But just one more point and one more question before we wrap up. Um, if England do lose this series by playing baseball the way they are, and they fail miserably and they have terrible performances, let's just say, how will that be received by the English public? Because there's been a lot of problems with English cricket um, in terms of, you know, coaching administrations and all county cricket or whatever. But um, more so with test cricket, that's been in the spotlight. Um, how would that be received if England do not win this Ashes series under Ben Stokes? Well, that's an interesting question. I think we have to uh, look at it in terms of the bigger picture. Uh, that the Australian team, we've seen how um, they came back uh, under uh, difficult uh, experiences, difficult times in India. Um, I think we would have to set it in context. A lot of um, people, you're quite rightly, there is a phrase England expects, and a lot of people have been talking up uh, the way the England batters are going to go out. And um, if there was to be a defeat, well, it's how I think the way you judge it is the way I've been taught, that you take you treat success and failure the same way. And a measure of uh, the team, a measure of the management, a measure of the leadership would be how they react to it and how they respond. And I... I think people will be um, expecting success if there are um, weaknesses in the Australian batting. Maybe uh, the a lot of reliance on my good friend Manus Labuschagne, um, hoping that Steve Smith isn't doesn't have as purple a spell. But um, the the younger uh, Usman Khawaja who, of course, also played for Glamorgan, a fine opening batter. But if I think there's a feeling that if England can get in, uh, let's say, reduce Australia to 50 for three, 50 for four, um, I, I, think it, I think it could actually be a, quite a low-scoring series, despite the fact we're talking about baseball and going on and, um, and getting uh, big scores. If English conditions, if it is going to be... Um, if there are going to be some green-tinged pitches with the ball uh, dominating, uh, it could be quite interesting. So you may have to look at your the depth of your batting. Hence, when we look at the likes of uh, Ben Folkes, when you look at the likes potentially then of uh, people like Chris Wokes, uh, Ollie Pope, where they all fit in. But I think an awful lot is going to depend on the messages that are given by the England team. Uh, and as presented by the media. 
if Australia lose, well, sorry, if, if England lose and Australia win, well, England haven't got a divine right to hosting the Ashes. And I suppose the, uh, the message would be, well, let's actually learn from those mistakes. Let's make sure we, we get it right. And uh, I know you can overanalyze and you can overcomplicate what at the end of the day is quite a simple game between uh, bat and ball. But at the end of the day, I think England certainly have their best chance of recent times if everyone stays fit. And uh, as I say, it's going to be a, a series that we uh, eagerly anticipate, whether you're in the northern or the southern hemisphere. Yes, um, a few late nights for me down here in Australia watching um the Ashes in England, as I have done for many years. Um, even the last Ashes series in 2019, which was a good series, even though Australia didn't win the series, but they, they got the Ashes back and they uh, retained the Ashes with a drawn series. But it'll be interesting to see who lift up, uh, lifts up the urn come the Oval on the final day of the series um, in June, July, August. Um, it's sure to be a, a great Ashes series as always. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for, for joining me today for this historical series episode to discuss uh, the history of cricket and the work the ACS does in preserving cricket uh, statistics and history within the game of cricket. I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it thoroughly and I've learned a lot. Um, once again, Andrew, where can people get in touch if they want to become a member of the association, if they want to sign up? Well, quite simply, head to the uh, ACS uh, website uh, or look at the ACS uh, Twitter feed. The website is acscricket.com um, or uh, if you want to look at the Twitter feed uh, to uh, Google then Association of Cricket Statisticians uh, and Historians. So um, acscricket.com is where you can find out so much more information uh, about um, this wonderful game that we all celebrate, whether you're a statistician or a historian or just a lover of the game. Absolutely. And we'll leave a link to all of those um, uh, social media links and the website in the description of this episode so people can go and explore that. So once again, thank you, Andrew, for joining me today to discuss the history of cricket and the work the ACS does in preserving cricketing statistics and history within the game of cricket. I hope all of you watching or listening uh, to this historical series episode learned a lot about the game of cricket's proud history uh, with me and Andrew discussing it in this episode today. Um, until next time, keep safe and bye for now. Hi everyone, hope you enjoyed our historical series episode. Looking back at the history of cricket with Andrew Hignall, Secretary of the Association of Cricket Statisticians and Historians. I hope you enjoyed listening to Andrew and I talk about the Association of Cricket Statisticians and Historians, the origins of cricket, and the ashes. I hope all of you learnt more about the history of cricket. If you are interested in becoming a member of the ACS, head over to their website, which is in the description of this episode. Thanks everyone for watching or listening to our historical series episode, Looking back at the history of cricket with Andrew Hignall, Secretary of the Association of Cricket Statisticians and Historians.